The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, is there merit in any of them or uh, is all of it just a show game to try to, you know, open up the closets and pull out uh, the ghosts and the skeletons of the 20th century? Is it just a way to go back to racism and fascism and anti-Semitism and misogyny and authoritarian ways of doing business? I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, February 16th, 2022. Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland has been one of the most prominent voices in Congress, speaking about January 6th and the aftermath of the insurrection. He has a uniquely personal relationship with the violence that day. He lost his son shortly before the riot, and went on to serve both as an impeachment manager, prosecuting the second impeachment of Donald Trump, and as a member of the House Select Committee on January 6th, on which he still sits. On February 15th, the Brookings Institution welcomed Representative Raskin to discuss his new book, Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy. We're bringing you audio of the event today in a special extra-long episode of the Lawfare podcast. First, you'll hear Brookings President John R. Allen in conversation with Representative Raskin. Then, you'll hear a panel of Brookings scholars discuss January 6th and Representative Raskin's reflections. Brookings Senior Fellow Sarah Binder moderated the second discussion, featuring Senior Fellows Fiona Hill, Rashawn Ray, and Molly Reynolds, along with me, Quinta Jurassic. We hope you enjoy. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 16th. Representative Jamie Raskin speaks at Brookings on the future of American democracy. Now, the book, Unthinkable, deals with both personal and national tragedy. Can you speak for a moment about uh, how those experiences influenced your decision to write this book? Well, these two events were uh, profoundly intertwined in my psyche. And um, as I say in the book, I'll probably spend the rest of my life trying to disentangle them. And if anything, they seem more closely related today than they did When I wrote my book like six months ago, you know, I see our loss of Tommy um, is very uh, interwoven with COVID-19 and the depression and the isolation and the demoralization that overtook our country, but certainly young Americans. And I think that the the kind of failed state quality of COVID-19 
also prefigured uh, the field state fascistic attack that took place on January 6th against our democratic institutions. But in any event, they were very intertwined in my mind, in my heart. And I, I couldn't sleep during that period. I couldn't eat. And so I was up all night. I was up too late even to call friends on the West Coast. And so I began to, to write about Tommy, to write about what happened, and to uh, write about the traumatic events of January 6th. And then also my experience as the lead impeachment manager putting together the case against Donald Trump. As you, as you think about as you say, you've spent a lot of time in, in uh, reflections, uh, spiritual reflection in many respects, I would imagine. As you think about how the situation is unfolding today uh, and the, the dire warnings and sometimes the enthusiastic support for how we are configured today and, and ultimately what our system of government will look like, what, uh, what and where are you most hopeful about America's future uh, as a leading democracy in the world? in this world? Well, I feel very hopeful um, about uh, the young people. Um, I feel hopeful about the new Americans who are in some sense very closely bound up with the, uh, the oldest ideals and values of the country. But, uh, but I, I'm not really despairing of the political situation because, uh, forgive me if I sound partisan here, John, uh, but you'll come to see that I, I have as pretty much a, a strong critique of my own party as I do of the other party. But I will say that we have one pro-democracy party left, which is the Democratic Party. And this party is, uh, is the receptacle of the hopes and dreams of the vast majority of the American people. I mean, Hillary Clinton beat Trump by 3 million votes in the popular vote, even when she lost to him in the Electoral College. Joe Biden beat him by more than 7.5 million votes. Uh, while defeating him in the Electoral College. And the young people are totally on the side of democracy and have gotten beyond the racism, the immigrant bashing, the anti-Semitism, the misogyny. Unfortunately, they've also gotten a little bit beyond uh, grammar too, but that's a different problem. So I, I feel like it's a race between the majority will of the people of the country and then uh, our antiquated political practices and institutions like gerrymandering of our elections, which of course is not in the constitution, um, the filibuster, which is not in the constitution, manipulation of the electoral college. The electoral college of course is in the constitution and we should be doing whatever we can to reform it and at least solidify the popular dimension of it until we can move to a popular vote for president. But what we've got is a contest between the majority will and kind of a bag of anti-democratic tricks. Is that what concerns you the most right now about the state of our democracy? Or are there other things that, uh, as we think about what an individual American citizen ought to be considering in doing for our country, what, what are those concerns that we should all as citizens be thinking about? Well, I think that's right. There's, um, you know, we do have some rickety and obsolescent uh, political practices and institutions that we need to get through. Um, you know, I'm very much of the uh, John Dewey frame of mind. Uh, in fact, a lot of our great democratic presidents uh, have said this, that um, 
you know, that the solutions to the ills of democracy are always more democracy, making democracy more perfect, making the union a more perfect representation of the will of the people. There is wisdom in crowds and the vast majority of the people reject insurrection and coups and big lies, conspiracy theory, um, and, you know, kind of this new ideological attack on democratic institutions. So what we're looking for is uh, a patriotic assemblage of people from all across the political spectrum to stand up for American constitutional democracy as it exists and as it can be uh, a more uh, perfect rep representation of the will of the people. Can this be the, the source of the beginning of the healing of the many divisions in the country? Because there, you've just gone down a list about racism and misogyny and, and uh, the, the various phobias that are abroad today in our society. How do we go about beginning to heal these many divisions? Well, it's going to be through um, social dialogue and discussion. Um, it also will require a lot of education, which of course our framers were adamant about that we need to educate society and educate ourselves uh, individually. Um, all of the, the lying and the conspiracy theories and these totalitarian tactics are the opposite of education. Uh, they're filling people's ideas with, uh, filling people's heads with um, authoritarian ideas and fantasies rather than with facts and understanding. And, um, you know, whatever the flaws and imperfections of our framers and our founders, and obviously there were many, they did believe in science and rationalism, empiricism. I mean, uh, one of the great virtues of our constitution was it was the first democratic constitution to break from um, theocracy and the union of church and state and it insisted upon uh, freedom of religious worship and ideas, but also that uh, when it comes to government, that we don't have religious ideas dictating to people. And I think that that can stand for the idea that there's a realm of mystery and personal belief, uh, which is apart from government, which must be based on facts and data and science and reason. Well, in, in your own uh, branch of the government, obviously in Congress, the, the country is, our, our attention is riveted <clears throat> to the, the polarization uh, that we have seen. You've already described it, uh, I think, well. And, and often bipartisanship is seen as weakness. How do we restore that? How do we begin to move back mm -hmm. to a, a willingness uh, to move to the middle in, in the context of, of being bipartisan? and finding a nonpartisan way forward? Well, the, I think it's, a, it's the right question. I think we've got to think far more broadly about the problem than we have in the past. Our constitution, of course, uh, was written, if not against political parties, at least apart from political parties. Political parties aren't mentioned, much less a two-party system, much less bipartisanship or two specific parties. Um, the idea was to try to inculcate Republican virtue in each citizen and then in the workings of the institutions. The framers understated or underestimated the extent to which partisanship would come to dominate our political thinking. So we get to a point where a president can actually incite a violent insurrection against Congress itself and then members of the Congress 
would vote not as partisans of Congress, which is what the framers uh, expected, but rather as partisans of their political party. And it's a dangerous thing. You know, we do know how to operate in a nonpartisan way as members of Congress, for example. Uh, and I always point to uh, our constituent offices. If you come to my constituent office in Rockville, you've got a problem with Social Security or Medicare or PPP or your passport, whatever it is. We don't ask you, are you a Democrat or Republican, a Libertarian, a Green or whatever? We just say, do you live in my district? If you live in my district, I'm going to go to bat for you. So we know how to do that. That's the mentality we've got to have, certainly with respect to defending the constitutional structure itself against attacks from the outside. But I would hope that we can uh, adopt that attitude when it comes to promotion of the common good. And when we think about legislation, I'm not you know, interested in making improvements to social security or to our energy policy for a particular group or particular party. I'm trying to do that for everybody. Um, so I think the language of bipartisanship itself is a little bit of a trap because there are millions and millions of people who hate both of our parties and who view themselves as outside both of our parties. And I think what we've got to think about is um, remembering that the word party comes from the French word parti, a part. Each party is just a part of the whole. And we can fight like cats and dogs between parties when we're in the election. And that's good because competition is good in politics, like in economics and sport and ideas and so on. Uh, but once we're in, we have to try to think about the whole and not just the part that helped us most get elected. Great, uh, great explanation, and particularly the, the part about when they come to your constituent office. That's really a, a very powerful uh, statement. You know, and I think uh, we talked about this before, that even though there appears to be uh, some pretty uh, big divisions uh, in this country at this particular moment, we actually share a lot in terms of our values. Uh, and often there is much more that we share than we don't. Could I ask you to talk a bit about when you think about our shared values, uh, what that means uh, for the audience to, to get a sense from our, an elected representative, when we talk about that, those two words, which are so important for the future of our country, what are the shared values that, that unite us and give us hope that we can move forward as a, as a democracy that is functioning as it was intended to? Well, the, the Americans, I think, are very practical people, pragmatic people who see a problem and want to confront it and uh, transform it. And uh, I see that every day in my district, in my state, in Maryland. I see it all over the place. And if we think in terms of problems to solve rather than issues to divide us, I feel like we can get together and we can make things happen. Um, certainly we see it during um, you know, weather calamities and emergencies. We see people coming together to work together towards a problem. You know, one would hope that that would be the attitude animating our response to climate change. Um, climate change doesn't have to be about blaming particular people for decisions we've made in the past, which are basically collective decisions. Um, I do believe that some blame attends to those who are trying to deny climate change and block us from uh, working together to make the changes that we need to make. But in truth, climate change should be an opportunity not only for us to unify the whole country, but to unify us with other countries working together to save us against this common enemy. It's not about the assignment of blame, uh, but it's about 
the mobilization of our capacities to build resiliency into our political and economic institutions uh, generally. And I think that is a profoundly American attitude. That's something that can and should unify us. But what we've got is this ideological crusade organized around one guy on kind of an authoritarian cultish basis, which is totally outside of the mainstream of American history. And I don't mean to deny that he's picked up on things like racism and white supremacy and you know immigrant bashing that have a history here, um, but we're really so far beyond that. And we know we're so far beyond that. So uh, I, I've got to believe we're gonna come out of this. It's gonna be a political struggle because as I was saying, the tools and implements of political control can be in the hands of political minorities against the majority. That's the struggle that we're in, but culturally and socially, John, I mean, you would know this better than me, but I think that our country is ready to confront the problems of the new century, does not want to be dragged back into debates about fascism and race and all of those things that made the 20th century such a nightmare in so many ways. I think you're exactly right. And, I, and we are poised, I believe, to have those conversations. We've certainly had uh, the reckoning on race in the last couple of years that has surfaced so many of these issues that we have to talk about, that we have to embrace the solutions to. Well, and we, if I could, if I could make a plug for one of one of your fellows, you know, uh, Fiona Hill's book, which is about the structure of economic and social opportunity in different countries, is so critical because um, it's the failure to address the lack of opportunity for so many people in so many societies that creates a temptation to move in an authoritarian direction. But if we get that right, if we make opportunity real for everybody in our societies, for everybody, then we, I think we won't be dragged back into uh, the nightmare conflicts of the 20th century. And, you know, we've got our own problems to deal with right now in terms of plague and disease and climate change and so on. And let me just add that uh, they're also on other panels today, but we have a very rich body of research going on on these very issues about race, justice, and equity in, in, in this institution. And we are fully committed, obviously, to the analysis and policy recommendations that can improve the quality of life of all Americans across the entire spectrum. One of the points that you made, which is really important, and I think people are very interested in, in your thoughts, but everyone's thoughts on this, and you talked about one of the solutions to our being able to move forward uh, with shared values as a, as a population is going to be found in education. Uh, could you talk a bit about uh, when, when that term uh, is raised, what is the education that we need to consider uh, for our youth, as you say, there are future in this regard, uh, for our youth, for the population in general right now? What, what role will education have in strengthening this moment for our democracy? Well, I, I wish my friend Fiona Hill were here because I know she's got an excellent perspective on this. But look, my, my take on it is that um, we have to think about education much more broadly. So much of education traditionally, we know in lots of societies around the world has simply been about the reproduction of social hierarchies in power. So it's kind of been about exclusion rather than inclusion. And it's been about monopolization of ideas rather than the sharing of ideas and you know the, the, the battle of ideas. So um, the, the development of all the new technology um, 
rather than making propaganda and lies more available to people, should be making education more available to people. And we need to be thinking about ways that we can see education as something that is going to take place for everybody at every stage of life. It's a continuous uh, process that uplifts everyone. So I think we need a little bit of a reckoning of the way that education has been uh, exclusionary and hierarchical and limited, uh, as great as our institutions have been in different ways, opening it up further um, and improving uh, our ability to mobilize knowledge and critical discussion and debate. Uh, it, you know, the internet should be an occasion for such celebration um, in terms of the opportunities for bringing people in. And I know that there are things going on in the internet which really do bring people in and make education uh, a lifelong process and, and deepen it. But we do need some uh, social investment in that process uh, to make it happen. Uh, and, you know, because the, the people who are using the internet for, well, at its worst, just hate speech and the dissemination of fascist ideas and so on, um, they, they will rally under the banner of the First Amendment. And so we need solutions to this that are not about censoring people, um, but about overcoming them with knowledge and the teaching of the best of all of human civilization has to offer to everybody. I mean, I think that's going to be our way fundamentally to defeat the epistemological crisis we're in with people simply denying things like climate change, who won the 2020 presidential election, what happened on January 6th. I mean, we're being buried in constant Orwellian totalitarian revisionism. Well, you raise an, a really important point, and we're doing a lot of work here on this and, and other think tanks are as well on this issue associated with, you know, the superhighway of the internet being the basis for the introduction into everyone's lives, almost a, a, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, uh, 24 hours a day, of not just uh, misinformation, which is information that's wrong, but disinformation, which is coldly calculated uh, to have a radicalizing effect one way or the other, <clears throat> and it, whether it stimulates white supremacy uh, or stimulates anti-Semitism or stimulates any of the other of the really negative phobias that we have to deal with today. It's all coming well, One of the us. reasons, if I could add one of the things, John, one of the reasons Please. I'm very, uh, I've been excited about the Build Back Better plan was because of the investment in universal pre-K for three-year-olds and four-year-olds, because uh, obviously for a long period of someone's growth, they don't need the internet. What they need is human connection. They need to learn about friendship and play and uh, learning how to read and learning the basics of, of math and science and how to learn and so on. And so we can't neglect that. And um, you know, modern science has confirmed the fundamental importance of, uh, of cognitive development at the very youngest ages. Well, that's an important uh, realization that we all have to embrace. And that has been, of course, one of the challenges we've had under COVID uh, is the limitation that the children have had to interact and also to interact with their teachers. And we're, we're beginning to see, hopefully, uh, that trend uh, reverse itself. But let me ask uh, Congressman Raskin, the, the role of Congress, uh, on the point I was making a few minutes ago, the role of Congress, or is there a role for Congress in in trying to get its hands around the, the really pernicious intent 
and effects of intentional myths or disinformation. I, and you said people take uh, refuge uh, behind the First Amendment, but we know it's it's often much worse than uh, the, the issues associated with freedom of speech. And we also have clear enemy entities outside the borders of the United States using uh, the internet and uh, social media platforms specifically to try to break down the cohesion of our society and to shake the confidence of the American people uh, in their leadership and in their institutions, et cetera. Is there a role for Congress in thinking this through, helping the American people understand it, and perhaps even considering some form of a legislative uh, process that uh, could give us some remedy on this? Well, there's a central and fundamental role for Congress, which uh, is the representatives of the people in fighting for a pro-democracy program and fighting for uh, the, all of the policy reforms we need to move the country forward. But specifically with respect to the misinformation and the disinformation and the propaganda, uh, absolutely. I, I would hope that our January 6th select committee, which I proudly serve on, will play um, a central role in both describing the role that that kind of propaganda played in uh, the crisis of January 6th and the onslaught against our democratic institutions, and also will forward different uh, ways of thinking about it for policy solutions um, at different levels of government. So we can, uh, you know, excavate ourselves from all of the propaganda, the disinformation and the, the polarization. Um, so yeah, I think Congress has got to be right at the center of of dealing with that and obviously you know we've got a role to play in terms of uh the internet um we've had something to do with the internet in terms of uh immunizing uh internet service providers against certain kinds of lawsuits which has been critical to the development of the internet and then we've got to think about well does that make sense is it better to make them responsible or if we're going to make that investment are there other kinds of uh, regulatory guardrails that can be put up. So, you know, we deal with the problem of propaganda and hate speech. That's complicated. And I think that at the end of the process of the uh, January 6th uh, the inquiry that we're doing about what happened on that day and why, and, uh, you know, how did it was a violent insurrection mobilized against us? What were the mechanics of this attempted presidential coup? All of that, we will get to the broader problem that you're talking about. And, and we hope so. Um, and we'll, we hope to learn a lot from uh, the outcome of this work. Uh, and if I can add one other thing, John, as you say, it is a global problem. Uh, I mean, we know that propaganda and disinformation are the tools of the authoritarian regimes and movements around the world, Putin in Russia, Orban in Hungary, Duterte in the Philippines, LCC in Egypt, Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, the homicidal crown prince of Saudi Arabia, you name it, uh, all of the enemies of democracy have unified under that kind of uh, propaganda assault on democratic institutions and values. President Biden has talked about the way that uh, the, you know, the authoritarians and the despots will say to him, you know, you're, you're, you're a nice guy, Joe Biden, but you're yesterday's news because what we need is dictatorship today. We need strong men and not democracy. So that's our challenge, that we've got to defend and rehabilitate the democratic idea and democratic institutions and practices for the new century. 
Well, let me put a plug in for a major uh, program that we're undertaking at Brookings, which is a global forum on democracy and technology, because it gets to the very point that you're making, which is that technology as it is emerging, uh, artificial intelligence, supercomputing, et cetera, gives the capacity, frankly, for the democracies, and most of the democracies are technologically advanced, it gives them an opportunity to do good for their societies in ways we could never have imagined before in medical research and education, uh, transportation, uh, development of urban centers. It, it really gives us a tremendous opportunity. But they're open societies. And these same technologies, as you've just pointed out, really give the autocrats and the illiberals and the authoritarians and the totalitarians, it gives them a capacity both to uh, surveil, suppress opposition in their own countries, but also to penetrate our own societies. And, and we have to understand this as we go forward. And this is one of the things that we've embraced uh, with uh, our own research and, and undertaking a global look at this in the context of how democracies uh, can ultimately uh, aggregate their commitment to the rule of law and, and uh, human rights as we embrace these technologies to further the good that these can do for our society, rather than to strengthen, as you say, strengthen the dictators who, who will invariably use these technologies against their own populations. That's excellent. Um, as we go forward uh, as a society, and we, you, know, you, hear, you hear the term frequently that all politics is local, and I think, uh, as you said very well, lots of the healing that will be necessary for our democracy going forward has also got to be local. What, what is the role of civil society as we see this, uh, the momentum moving forward on strengthening our democracy? Well, civil society is completely unimportant in uh, the authoritarian societies and the dictatorships. Civil society, if anything, is a threat to the character of the political regimes, right? And so it needs to be totally subordinate. I noticed in today's newspaper that Daniel Ortega had just taken over the private universities in Nicaragua, having taken over and subdued the public universities. But in a democratic society, civil society is the essence of what we're fighting for, right? I mean, we have got to view civil society as a central element of what democracy is. Um, it is the, the social organism that inhabits the free space of a democratic society. The civil society has taken a hit in a lot of ways, uh, COVID-19 being one of them, uh, as it has stifled so much uh, social activity. Um, and again, we've got a... You know, the, the tyrants and despots figure out immediately how they can use the technology uh, to um, enrich themselves, to insulate their power, and to destabilize democracies. And I think for democracies, it's been a much slower process trying to figure out how to integrate technology with real life in a civilized and decent way. And of course, you know, there are different reactions. Some people just say, well, we can't have this, just like we can't have TVs or we can't have phones. And then others said, well, let's figure out how we can make it work and so on. And so that's why I'm glad you're doing the work you're doing. Um, we need to be talking about this because we need to be defending, you know, all of the institutions of civil society, the schools and the universities and uh, the, the churches and the 
you name it, the athletic leagues, the sports leagues, um, the, the civil life of society, and make sure that they are not all subordinated to the dictatorial will of one person. Well, as you look out across the spectrum of public policy research institutions, which also the term is think tank, of which you're, you're joining us today in a think tank at Brookings, as you look out across the, the spectrum of, of the think tanks, uh, Congressman Raskin, what can we do? What, what do you need for the think tanks to be doing uh, to help to support the strengthening of democracy uh, here at home and frankly abroad? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, um, there are lots of think tanks that I draw a lot from, including uh, the Brookings Institute and uh, Fair Vote, the Center for Voting and Democracy, which does a lot on electoral institutions, the Institute for Policy Studies, which my father was a co-founder of, uh, the Cato Institute, which has done such great work on freedom and so on. Um, you know, th there are some think tanks that really subordinate themselves to particular political parties or even particular politicians. And that's obviously a denigration and bastardization of the idea of what a think tank should be. Um, you know, and I don't know to what extent the different think tanks come together around uh, the, the defense of democracy, uh, but I think that if, if ever they did, now would be a perfect moment to do it. Um, and, uh, and that might break down some of the, you know, some of the unnecessary walls that exist um, between them. I mean, you know, to, to move democracy forward um, in the 21st century is gonna require ideas coming from a lot of different places. Some ideas that have been called radical, some that have been called conservative, some that have been called liberal, some that have been called libertarian, what have you. We're gonna to have to bring together the best of all of those ideas to defend democracy against authoritarian attack. And I think the, the think tanks, which um, I don't know if that's an American innovation or not, it feels like American innovation, but in any event, um, I think we have a we do have a thriving policy sector and think tank sector. Getting the think tanks together to figure out, um, you know, what sorts of common values and programs there might be would be a great thing to do. Well, let, let me assure you that, uh, in fact, many of the think tanks that you would uh, uh, think of here in Washington, uh, we are in fact thinking about this, and we're sharing ideas. Uh, and the good news is as well that uh, we're talking to many of, uh, of our counterpart think tanks around the world, uh, because many of them are under direct attack, uh, their ideas uh, by the authoritarians and the illiberal societies. Uh, and in some respects, these are outposts of democracies and outposts yeah. of, of values, just as in some respects they are serving and I don't know if this particular book exists, and I don't mean to give you guys homework or anything, but I would love to see a book, you know, coming out of Brookings or a, co a collection of uh, the pro-democracy think tanks that confront directly the ideas to the extent that they exist of the Steve Bannon universe, like what, what these people are actually saying and what it means. And, you know, is there merit in any of them or uh, is all of it just a show game? to try to you know, open up the closets and pull out uh, the ghosts and the skeletons of the 20th century? Is it just a way to go back to racism and fascism and anti-Semitism and misogyny and authoritarian ways of doing business? Um, I, I think it's definitely worth a study. 
Well, we'll certainly take a look at that. I, what I will tell you is that there are some that serve that purpose, um, and they were they were purpose built to do that, uh, or they were funded ultimately to do that. But I'll also tell you that there are think tanks around the world today that we deal with from time to time, or, or all the time, uh, where the uh, our colleagues in those think tanks are in fact at personal risk because they are taking a stand on behalf of human rights, and they are taking taking a stand on the on the rule of law, and they are taking a stand on the uh, the direct assault on the democracies of their countries. Um, and yeah, those... well, and that's clearly another important role that our think tanks can play is the defense exactly. of intellectual life in other societies where, you know, just writing an essay or an op-ed can get you thrown into jail. That's exactly correct. Uh, we have just a couple minutes left. Let me ask, uh, I probably should have asked this at the top of the uh, of the chat, uh, the fireside chat, but let's go back to the 6th of January last year. As that really long and traumatic day came to an end, can you share with us what your thoughts were uh, in terms of the experience you had just had and how that was going to shape your commitment to democracy going forward? And I think we have benefited from that so far this morning and we've all benefited from your leadership on the Hill and from reading the, the, the book that you have just uh, uh, written. But at, as you walked out of the Capitol, that, well, what was going through your mind, sir? One thing that was going through my mind was trying to understand what had just taken place. And I could see already on that first day, three levels of sedition, if you will, three rings of activity. And one was a mass demonstration which turned into a mob riot involving tens of thousands of people, many of whom had been innocently drawn to Washington for a wild protest called uh, by the then president. But that level of action resulted uh, in the injury and the wounding of 150 of our officers who ended up with broken necks, vertebrae, lost fingers, broken jaws, traumatic brain injuries, post-traumatic stress syndrome, and so on. A, a second ring, a middle ring of activity, was what I could perceive was the realm of the insurrection itself. That is, organized domestic violent extremist groups like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, uh, the Aryan Nations, the militia groups, um, the First Amendment Praetorian, the QAnon networks, which had actually been training for battle, some in paramilitary fashion, and came to smash out our windows, knock down our doors, begin the assault against our officers, and lead the storming of the Capitol in order to interrupt the counting of electoral college votes. But the most terrifying ring of all was the innermost ring, the ring of the coup. And we think of that uh, is not really an American thing. We don't have a lot of experience with coups in our own country. Um, but, uh, and also, you know, we think of coups as something taking place against a president. And this was a coup uh, orchestrated by the president against the vice president and against the Congress. And so um, that was the part that actually um, I understood the best at the beginning because, um, you know, I had been following Trump as he first he tried to get election officials like Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in Georgia just to nullify the popular vote and find 11,780 votes. And when that didn't work with dozens of election officials, he tried to get state legislatures to just 
overthrow and nullify the popular vote and install uh, electoral slates pledged to him. And when that didn't work, you know, there were some side maneuvers to try to just seize the electoral machinery and essentially impose a military dictatorship. But really what they ended up with on January 6th was an attempt to get Mike Pence to proclaim hitherto unknown extra constitutional powers to nullify electoral college votes coming in from the states here, Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, lowering Joe Biden's vote total below 270, from 306 to somewhere below 270, depending on the number of states they could reject and return. And what that would have done under the 12th Amendment was to immediately convoke a so-called contingent election under the 12th Amendment. And the reason for that was they understood that in a 12th Amendment, even though Speaker Pelosi and the Democrats were in charge, we would be voting not one member one vote, but one state one vote. And after the elections, they had 27 state delegations. We had 22. We have 22. Pennsylvania was split right down the middle. So even had they lost the at-large rep from Wyoming, as I think they would have, Liz Cheney, they still would have had 26 states to declare Donald Trump the victor. And at that point, I think he was prepared to invoke uh, the Insurrection Act and uh, declare martial law. So anyway, I was trying to figure all of that out and how these different levels of activity worked with each other at the same time that I was thinking about both impeachment and an attempt to implement the 25th Amendment. Because remember, everybody was really afraid that this wasn't the end that there would be further insurrectionary activity, further attempts at a coup. No one knew what Donald Trump would do in order to consolidate his hold on power. And so we did end up voting to ask the vice president to invoke the 25th Amendment. And when he refused to do that, then we moved uh, to impeachment. So that was basically on my mind. In my heart, of course, uh, was my son, Tommy, and thinking yeah. about Tommy and how devastated and demolished he would have been to see this happen because one of his sisters, uh, his younger sister Tabitha was there with me and his brother-in-law Hank too. Well, Congressman Jamie Raskin of the 8th District of Maryland, author of Unthinkable, uh, you have helped us today uh, with this session of the Future of American Democracy, a conversation with Congressman Jamie Raskin. You have helped us to set the conditions for this conversation, but you've also helped us uh, to consider our actions as we move forward as a public policy research institution about the matters that we've discussed and our obligation to do good for the American people and more broadly uh, for our counterparts in the in civil society and around the world. Can't thank you enough for joining Well, us. thank you, General Allen, and for all of your great work and the work that your colleagues do. Uh, at Brookings, and uh, I'm delighted to be part of the conversation. I wish I could stay and hang out with you guys, but uh, the people of the 8th District beckon, and uh, I've got to go out and see some people right now. How fortunate they are. Thank you very much for joining us, and I'll turn the floor over to Sarah Bender, and thank you, Congressman. Thank you. thank you. sir. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, thank you very much, um, John. Uh, and welcome everyone to our panel of uh, Brookings scholars and uh, some 8th District residents, I believe. Um, our goal this morning uh, is to consider uh, and to reflect upon these hard challenges uh, to American democracy uh, that Representative Raskin and Brookings President John Allen uh, have explored uh, together this morning. So uh, let me start us with a quick round of uh, introductions and then we will uh, get into some questions. Uh, first, uh, Molly Reynolds, a senior fellow in governance studies and expert on Congress uh, and legislative politics uh, and uh, expert as well on oversight in the January 6th uh, committee. Uh, Quinta Jurassic, fellow in governance studies, a senior editor at Lawfare, expert on technology, uh, misinformation uh, and much more. Uh, Rashawn Ray, uh, senior Fellow in Governance Studies, Professor of Sociology at uh, Maryland College Park, and an expert on racial equity, uh, criminal justice, policing, uh, and more. Uh, and Fiona Hill, Senior Fellow in Foreign Policy, uh, expert on uh, European and Russian affairs, national intelligence, uh, security, and more. So uh, we have all just heard uh, Congressman Raskin's uh, very moving personal, uh, as well as constitutional reflections on the insurrection of January 6th. So I'd like us to start off with a round of uh, your own reflections from the events of that day, from your vantage point as scholars of governance uh, here uh, and abroad. Oh, what would you say are the most important consequences or takeaways uh, from what we witnessed that day? Uh, we'll start with Molly and then move to Quinta Rashan and Fiona. All right, thank you, Sarah, um, and thanks everyone for joining us today. So um, Congressman Raskin talked quite a bit about his own uh, sort of takeaways from, from January 6th and what it says about the, um, the health of our democracy. Um, and I suspect that my colleagues will also have really perceptive things to say, but as someone who thinks uh, about the United States Congress as an institution, um, I would say that the most the sort of biggest takeaways for me were one, that so many elected members of Congress were willing, even after a physical attack on their building and on their own safety, to still return to the floor after the, the violence had ceased and cast votes to disregard the electoral votes from Arizona and Pennsylvania. Um, and just simply sort of what that says about the um, sort of uh, Representative Raskin talked about the need for members in certain moments and at certain times to put aside their partisan affiliations and sort of stand up for the institution of the Congress, the institutions of democracy. And sort of that um, uh, is so the, the fact that so many 
members, um, so many Republican members were willing to do that is one of the things that I have sort of um, really taken away from, from the day. And then say sort of um, a little bit farther down the line from there, thinking about the consequences of the day for the foregoing functioning of the legislative process. So one of the things that um, Mr. Raskin mentioned is that you know, he continues to have um, a great deal of faith in sort of the young people of, of the United States. But one of the things that, again, as someone who watches Congress that we've seen on a kind of day-to-day -day level in terms of the mechanics of people trying to work together to solve the problems of the country inside the Congress is that January 6th has, you know, made that a more difficult task and it has made Congress and congressional service and public service just a uh, a less attractive thing for the kinds of young people who um, who Representative Raskin had so much faith in um, for them to, to want to do. And so I think that one of the things that, you know, in addition to the very big picture um, things to take away from the sixth is that it has simply made it more difficult for the people who go to work every day on Capitol Hill to try to solve the the myriad problems of our country beyond the rising authoritarian impulses and, and anti-democratic forces, all of the other problems that we also face. It's just made it harder for, um, for folks to do that. Great, thank you, Molly. Quinta? Yeah, as Molly says, I think that Congressman Raskin's reflections on what it was like to be a member of Congress and to work in Congress on the six are really striking, particularly so in my view, because the Republican Party is going through a bit of an internal fight about uh, whether or not to use the Republican National Committee's language, uh, the events of January, January 6th constitute legitimate political discourse. Um, and what I'm referencing by that phrase, of course, is the RNC's statement uh, censoring uh, representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who are the two Republican members sitting on the January 6th committee, saying that they are persecuting Americans who are only engaging in legitimate discourse on that day. And that phrasing has raised a lot of questions about what the RNC was referring to. They said that they weren't referring to violent rioters. Um, I think there's arguably a little bit of ambiguity, uh, perhaps intentionally, in that statement. But that the conversation that was stirred up around that, the fact that the RNC walked that back, defended itself, uh, Senate uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell then came out and said that the events of the six were not legitimate political discourse really underlines for me how, first off, the, the sort of role of January 6th and the civic memory of Americans is really unsettled, that, you know, a year and change on, there is not agreement that the fact of a violent attack on the U.S. Capitol was a bad thing or even there's not agreement that there was a violent attack on the US Capitol, or if we do agree on that, we might not agree on who, who did it, which is itself striking. And within the Republican Party, I think what we're seeing is a sort of an effort to straddle the line of neither completely rejecting the six on the part of the mainstream Republican Party, nor embracing it and sort of allowing a little wiggle room to appeal to people who adhere to you know, a range of different um, views on the reality of what happened that day. And to me, that really emphasizes just how much danger, frankly, American democracy is in if, as Congressman Raskin says, one of our two major political parties is the party that is representing democracy in America, and the other major political party is a party that is undecided 
on whether or not a violent attack on the U.S. Congress in an effort to overturn an election is a bad thing or can't uh, organize itself sufficiently in order to decry that attack, that is very dangerous um, because it means that the continuance and the health of American democracy is to some extent dependent on the continuing victory of one party, which is, of course, concerning insofar as uh, that party may not win, but also in, in the sense that we shouldn't want that. You know, a, a healthy democracy, it should be possible to have many different outcomes of elections and for that democracy to still continue. So in that sense, I think uh, Congressman Raskin's remarks today really drive home to me the danger that I think we're currently in. Thanks. Let's put a, a pin on the note about uh, the, the relevance and the impact of parties uh, and, and the strength of those parties or not in fostering democratic rule. Uh, Rashawn? Well, when I think about January 6th, I think about a lack of political account accountability. Uh, Quinta just highlighted this as well as Molly. There have been a lot of arrests for sure. Um, but part of what we know is that the lack of, of political accountability for individuals who um, it's become clear to some of us knew certain things and might have played a larger role in this process. Individuals who have been elected, and then we know, if we look back on the 2020 election, there were people who participated on that day who ran for office and have since been elected. And I think for a lot of people, it further drives a lack of trust and that there are a select few um, who are playing a game with people's lives. You know, one of the things that Senator, I mean, that uh, Representative Raskin noted, he stated that, that we're beyond that, and that was white supremacy. It is this uh, divisiveness. He was talking about the fact that we are in this democratic experiment and that people more or less buy into that. Um, but sometimes that gives me pause when we hear those particular statements, because he then said, he was like, well, you know, of course, we, we just look back on the 20th century and there was a lot of racism going on there and we've moved on. And then you think, well, before the 20th century, we had the 19th century and people that look like me were, were, still, were still enslaved and before that even more so. And now here we are in, the, in, the, in, in this particular century and we've had this insurrection. And I think we have to be honest as Americans that in every aspect of American history, we have had these problems, yes, there's been a lot of progress, but admitting that some of us actually want America to look quite different and actually want only a few people to control it, I think is emblematic of what we saw on January 6th. And, and while people like Representative Raskin are walking the walk, um, there are not enough people doing so. Um, I'm unsure if there are even people talking the talk. And as James Baldwin stated, um, I can't necessarily believe what you say because I see what you do. And faith and follow through are different things. So accordingly, we can have faith in our democratic experiment. But until all of us are actually able to actualize it, that's something different. You know, on January 6th, I remember reflecting just days after January 6th, looking at the narratives, hearing what people were saying. And I said, wow, there's going to not be any, any political accountability. And again, Representative Raskin, he, he stated that he, he's on this committee and there's going to be accountability. We're going to see because history tells us that we aren't there yet. Uh, but accordingly, the comparison that, that I thought about is guns and Sandy Hook. And I thought, okay, wow, if Sandy Hook did not lead to America grappling with a very different relationship with guns, 
Similarly, if January 6th, if the insurrection of domestic terrorists storming the Capitol, aiming to uphold uh, white supremacy and American ideals only for a select few people, didn't change the status quo, then what is that saying about us? And what we need in Washington, on Capitol Hill, as well as in state legislatures, is more political will. And I think that is the big reflection that I have, is from the moment that happened, I was like, there's going to be a lack of accountability. There's going to be a lot of scapegoating. And people who should be responsible for this are not. They're going to run for office again. They're going to get elected again. They're going to use January 6th as a soundbite. And people's lives are going to continue to not be as well as they could be. Right. Um, let's come back to uh, several of those points first about accountability and what we think of the January 6th uh, committee and whether it's poised uh, to perform that type of uh, any type of uh, accountability and also your, your points about the roots, uh, the roots of January 6th, I think we should come back to too. Uh, Fiona? Thanks very much uh, to everyone. I mean, these are really excellent points uh, <clears throat> from my Quinta and Rashawn. And I think you know, at least just to offer, you know, a slightly different perspective, which actually ties into everything that they have said here. From the outside, um, looking in at January 6th, and of course, I was here, in fact, I was right here in this little Zoom space that I always seem to be these days since the beginning of uh, the pandemic. So I remember exactly where I was actually <laughs> in watching things in real time on my computer and on, and on the television. But I also started to get a lot of emails and, you know, calls from uh, friends and family overseas who were completely shocked by what was happening. For a lot of people abroad, this was kind of the 9-11 of politics, just as people saw the Twin Towers of the kind of the symbolism of America, the freedoms of America, American capitalism, you know, everything about America being brought down uh, by um, the, the planes on that fateful and terrible day. People were similarly shocked and stunned by the idea that this time, um, as you know, Sean um, was basically depicting here, a group of predominantly white Americans, predominantly men, uh, some you know with um, all kinds of uh, symbols of hatred from uh, the um, Confederate flag to all of the other you know accoutrements that they kind of brought with them, including you know putting up a noose um, outside of the Capitol and the pipe bombs. So there was you know uh, also the attempted a terrorist attack on the night before um, January six would be storming the Capitol building, which is the symbol of freedom in the United States, of representation of democracy, not some evil citadel uh, that. Um, is seen as something alien uh, to be conquered, that was just a massive shock. And I think that within, uh, while we're uh, basically engaged in our own domestic debates, we don't realize the impact this has had internationally. Because the United States had a very powerful example with its democracy, free and fair elections. We were the gold standard in many respects of certainly attempts, notwithstanding all of the other problems that we've laid out on the table here, of trying to actually conduct an election in an admirable fashion. And for all of the people who actually handled the election and oversaw the election and supervised election, there were also foreign observers. There was an agreement that the election of 2020 was one of the most secure, the most free and the most fair in American history against the backdrop of uh, the pandemic. And so then that jarring juxtaposition of, you know, kind of what would have been a successful election and then an attempt to overturn it 
was just completely shocking. And the kind of scenes that you would see in other settings, in fact, you know, we saw them relatively recently in Kazakhstan with the storming of government buildings and the burning due to socioeconomic protests. There wasn't a socioeconomic protest there, but what actually did turn into a power struggle, which is, you know, basically on the streets of Almaty, um, uh, the southern city of Kazakhstan with great violence. And that's what this became. It was really, it wasn't a socioeconomic protest. It was a power struggle, but a group of people trying to retain power. And that's the second observation that I had. I was in the middle of you know, writing the book that um, Congressman Raskin referred to. And I had to come completely rethink it in, in real time. I realized that what I was seeing unfolding before my eyes, just like many other people saw it, was an attempted coup or was part of a, an attempted coup. And I think you know, this is why the committee, it's so important to get out all of the details around that. Having been in the Trump administration and you know, having been called up as a witness in the first impeachment trial and having you know, seen for myself uh, this effort to sort of subvert, our, subvert our national and um, foreign uh, policies by President Trump, I'd already become very attuned to the fact that he was trying to stay in power by all kinds of means, a phone call with President Zelensky of Ukraine, for example, all kinds of other manipulations. And there with that rally, which I'd been partially paying attention to and then with the events of you know basically inciting and encouraging a mob to storm the capital was further evidence of what was a slow motion ongoing process to overturn the election and to stay in power i wrote about it immediately afterwards a lot of other people have written about it as well but that was also how it looked from the outside and i mean again while we're having our internal discussion which is vital we have to remember that the eyes of the world are upon us as well because if the United States fails at this experiment, if we fail at the accountability that Rashawn is talking about, if we reverse all of the things that Molly and Quinta um, are referencing as well, the importance of a two-party system, and we want the, uh, uh, the Republican Party uh, to survive and prevail and not become a cult uh, of personality, we want to have that vibrant democracy um, of a healthy two-party system that we've had in the past. If we fail at this, then there's not much hope for democracy elsewhere because we keep forgetting the role that the United States has played since World War II in helping to rebuild democracies in Europe and still being um, a kind of a flagship and a beacon around the world. Well, we've lost that right now. It's completely tarnished. And what we would probably um, expect to see is more of the same elsewhere if we kind of fail to also fully um, bring accountability to the system and try to reverse some of the problems that we've seen there. So this debate that we're having is going to be watched and scrutinized very carefully, not just in Washington, D.C. or around the United States, but around the rest of the world as well. Thank you, uh, Fiona. Uh, it's important to keep our blinders uh, like broadened um, for sure. Let's turn to some of the issues you've raised in answering this question. I, I think it'll be helpful to think a little bit more about the roots of what we saw on January 6th. Uh, you want to say, uh, each of you, a little bit about how you see that, how much is stemming from uh, the Trump personality and the Trump presidency, or are there deeper, longer roots here? Um, some Rashawn has referenced already, but can we can we knit it together a little more fully? Um, and then when we, when we get to Fiona, um, maybe think about where else do you see these sorts of uh, movements? Do you see reflections of these movements abroad uh, as well? We'll go uh, Quinta, Molly, Rashawn, and then back to Fiona. Sure, absolutely. I do think that Rashawn is is absolutely right that you know to really understand the six that you do have to look farther back than the Trump presidency and that the sixth makes the most sense understood as a kind of revanchist action aimed at reestablishing largely or exclusively white control over American political life that you know one of the 
instances and the descriptions of the Capitol Police officers who were there on that day that I, I keep coming back to is the testimony of Officer Harry Dunn, who is Black and uh, has testified about his incredible exchange with a, a rioter, a white female rioter in the Capitol who told him that everyone had voted for Trump and he responded that he, he had voted for Biden and did his vote not count. Um, and at that point, the rioter called him the N-word. Um, and I think that, you know, that that interaction really seems to encapsulate so much about the six insofar as it was not only, I would argue, a violent insurrection and a coup attempt, but also an effort to say that, you know, white Americans or a certain slice of predominantly white Americans are those whose voices truly count that are truly American and that should truly be represented in the halls of government. Um, and that the voices and beliefs of other Americans who didn't fit that description de facto did not count because they didn't fit into those demographic and cultural categories. I do think that, you know, I, I don't want to underplay the role that Trump himself uh, played in this. I mean, I do think that Trump is in some ways a unique political figure, at least in, in recent American political history and the extent to which he was willing to uh, demonstrate how thin some of the norms that we have governing our political life are and how, how willing he was to uh, not only exercise power for power's sake, but also encourage his followers to, to do so as well um, and to sort of take encourage them to, to take raw power and ignore the legal structures around it um, or bend those legal structures to their own ends. And I, can, I think it's a, it's a long debate um, to what extent that's unique, but I, I would argue that there is something unique there and that that, that, that that encouragement led to a willingness on the part of the crowd to make some of those currents that Rashawn pointed to that I think have long been sort of sublimated, at least in recent American politics, just very, very present and violent in a new way. Thank you. Rashawn and then Molly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Quinta nailed it. Um, I mean, when I think about what we see there, on one hand, we have active participation, people who clearly did something. Uh, and then, of course, we can have uh, people who are participating in some sort of conspiracy where they might have not directly um, engaged in the act, but of course they help to, to help to facilitate it. But the group that oftentimes gets left out are individuals who engage in what we might call benign neglect. So they knew that it was happening. They didn't do anything. Um, as a person who studies law enforcement, I think that's one of the things that happened. I mean, the way that police officers, um, as many of you all noted, and as Representative Raskin noted, that the number of police officers who were injured on that day who did not have backup um, I mean, that is a travesty, particularly when in the area like Governor uh, Larry Hogan in Maryland, who's a Republican governor, by the way, that's important to note, was planning to send and mobilize people to the Capitol in the way that things are supposed to be. And he was told not to send them. And I think when we put this together, I think we have to juxtapose this with the summer before, summer 2020, where we saw a Black Lives Matter protest. Um, in a very similar position. And guess what? Over 300 people were arrested that night. And overwhelmingly, that was um, a nonviolent protest compared to January 6th, 
I believe it was about 60 people or so, and I could be slightly off on that number, but definitely less than 100 that were that were arrested that day on January 6th. And so part of it, when we juxtapose that, we can see the way that uh, people who are upholding certain ideals, um, in this case, uh, we might think an, an ideology of, of, of white supremacy and right-wing extremism. And then on the other hand, uh, I think what people might consider to be uh, racial progressiveness, we can see the way that uh, that those particular aspects are responded to. Um, and then we do have to think, as Quentin was saying, the role that the president played um, in particular. We go back to, to the 2016 election. We know that in places where Donald Trump campaigned at, that hate crimes increased over 200%. So we know that people's words matter, that their rhetoric can inflame things. And I think it boiled over on January 6th, but there were also other opportunities where people knew that uh, that, that they might not face the same consequences as other people, not only the juxtaposition with the Black Lives Matter protest, but also Kyle Rittenhouse, who of course ended up getting off later, but at that time when he engaged in that act in the upper Midwest and he shot people and killed people, he just walked straight by law enforcement, just walked straight by them, they told him to go home. And then of course we have to think about the anti-lockdown protest, which I view as a precursor in some ways to what happened on January 6th, where there was very little, little accountability, where people were storming states' capitals, people were threatening governors, and what happened? Not a whole lot. And so part of it, it speaks to what Fiona was stating about as it relates to how, how our democracy is being viewed, particularly in an international context. So I think it's important for us to put this in a broader context and see these connections that January 6th was not isolated, it was just a large event that boiled over. And it's very unclear to me if we have done really anything to prevent something else like that happening again. Thank you. Molly, do you want to reflect a bit on roots here? Of yeah, so um, uh, Quinton and Rashad have done a really great job of sort of situating us in the a big picture answer to this question about the roots. I'm going to just um, sort of uh, add a couple of um, kind of inside the um, the capital ways to think about this question um, on on roots and one actually picks up on um, what Rashawn was saying about sort of um, uh, benign neglect and like one of the things that we now have a sense of that happened on the sixth is why were the Capitol Police um, as unprepared as they were? Why did sort of, um, you know, they not accept help from Governor Hogan um, and others who wanted to send backup? And some of that is because they looked at this protest and the intelligence they had about this protest, and they treated it differently than they would have treated a a similarly situated protest from um, Black protesters. And, you know, Rashawn was talking about the contrast between these, uh, the approach to January 6th and the approach to the racial justice protests in the summer of 2020. But that's just a very specific example of how these broader forces um, kind of played out. The other thing I'll, I'll say, again, thinking about the role of individual members of Congress in kind of what happened um, and, and the reaction, is that one of the things Representative Raskin talked about is the way that kind of members think about their representational role. And I think one of the, to go back to, to my comment before about you know, the number of members who are willing to show up um, after the violence had ceased and still vote to throw out the election results is that we have members who kind of see their, their 
their jobs um, as um, kind of overwhelming deference to the preferences of their constituents over um, taking, you know, stands at moments of great national crisis. Um, and so I think that that's a, um, again, that's a much longer, to go back to your original question, Sarah, that's a much longer trend um, in American politics and congressional politics. And then the last thing that I'll say, and this actually goes to something, um, Sarah, that I know you've written a lot about, which is um, the very specific role, I think, of um, over time kind of stretching of procedural norms. So one of the things that um, Representative Raskin also talked about is the, the degree to which at the crux of all of this was this idea that like Mike Pence could do something. He had power on the sixth under the rules and the procedures and the law to do something other than simply open the envelopes and announce the results of the votes. And kind of how did we get to a world where people thought that that was true. Um, and I would I would posit that there's, I'm, I'm not gonna say this is the cause of that, but sort of several decades of um, kind of boundary pushing and stretching and envelope pushing of legislative procedures has gotten us to a place where it there are people to whom it seems plausible that Mike Pence has power to do this because of kind of the ways that members have otherwise treated procedural rules and norms. Um, and so that that's not a I, I, that's a that's a little piece in this big story. Um, but I do um, as we kind of go um, down, and then maybe Fiona will take us back up again um, to think about the different pieces of the puzzle. Great. And we could come back to these questions. There's some from the audience about norms versus institutions and what was the bedrock here and why are they crum seem to be crumbling. Um, Fiona, do you want to offer us some thoughts on where else uh, we see these types of tensions or authoritarian tendencies? Um, where would you say to be the roots where you, where you see them elsewhere? Well, look, I think uh, if we look around the world, we see, you know, very similar phenomena um, in many different settings, which is why this is so important that we actually show that we can find a way of resolving all of the tensions and the contradictions here and to put ourselves in a different place to move forward. Uh, picking up on uh, what both, um, you know, John Allen and Jamie Ruskin said about always striving for that ever perfect union, which is always off there <laughs> in the future, but it's certainly in the preamble to the constitution, it was certainly at the, uh, at the founding of the Republic of trying to think about, you know, this was going to be a work in progress and how we were always going to fix it. And as, you know, Rashawn has pointed out, we've got a long tail on some issues that just kind of keep cropping up over and over again. And clearly is a, is a big message just that we have to do, um, you know, something about this. And, and that is really why you know, people look to the United States, for an example. I mean, we are a multi-ethnic, multi-confessional, uh, multicultural um, uh, country that is, I can say multi-everything, uh, that is really at a tipping point because we're at a demographic tipping point, we're at a tipping point in um, uh, our economy again. And certainly in terms of our institutional politics, as Molly and you, know, you have uh, uh, both pointed out here about this sort of stretching of legislative procedures and norms, because you know we, we're constantly um, in this need of refurbishment and uh, reform of uh, of our institutions. So other settings that are very similar, um, uh, I think you know do uh, hold a lot of cautionary tales. So one thing that really kind of struck me as I kind of think back to January six and getting back to you know what was just said about um, you know uh, by Molly about 
many of members of Congress thinking that their job was somehow to put de deference to the preference of their constituents. It was also kind of a deference to their tribe or their team. I mean, the constant way of not letting somebody else win. And I have to say that this may sound bizarre, but this really reminded me of soccer violence in the United Kingdom. So I grew up at a time in the UK in the northeast of England where we had all kinds of things happening. But one of it was the rise of the unbelievable soccer hooliganism uh, that really was the scourge. It was you know, known as the British disease uh, around the rest of Europe. And when you looked at that soccer hooliganism, which was, of course, the extremist uh, versions of tribalism and, you know, sort of team loyalty and winning and losing, there were violent entrepreneurs at the core of it who were setting off the violence. In the supporters club, there were people who were often bankers in uh, the city of London, you know, for example, or other, you know, just like many of the people that we saw on January 6th, who were not the great washed masses of supporters um, who were, you know, out there for the game. But we're looking to set off violence and some of them got money out of this or they also got a kind of a certain prestige and power. There's an absolutely brilliant book that I'm always recommending to people called Among the Thugs by Bill Buford, uh, which was written in that kind of period of the 80s and 90s, that height of soccer hooliganism, that shows that that dynamic and there were all of these uh, intertwining threads. And that's where we are. People are looking at party politics now, particularly in the Republican Party, so to say, as a kind of an extreme version of this uh, team uh, you know, affinity and setting off this violence. I mean, I've been in those crowds and feeling it where there's this, there's, there was this word aggravation. People wanted a bit of aggravation and aggression. And when I looked at what was happening on January 6th, that felt like the same thing. And the violence in which, you know, people picked up implements and beat the crap out of the police and other people around. That's what I saw when I was in, you know, soccer crowds after, after matches in the UK, you know, as a younger person. And I was shocked when I saw that. But it also then kind of fits into these other forms of communal violence in other places. And that's where we are right now. You know, I've mentioned at one point in some other discussion that we all had about a kind of a cold civil war. And I don't think that quite gets where we are because that gives people a completely different impression. But it's that kind of idea of extreme polarization and partisan that I was trying to get across. But what we are is in already in a state of intercommunal violence that can take its uh, forms of different kinds of communities, you know, affinity groups that people are putting themselves in. It can be from, you know, violence among the supporters of a particular uh, sporting team, but it can be of, you know, any kind of particular group. And those evident uh, examples of communal violence are everywhere. Um, in other societies. Look at India, uh, this happening all the time uh, under the influence of, uh, you know, the Hindu Nationalist uh, Party, and you're getting all kinds of uh, upsurges of communal violence. Northern Ireland, you know, again, in the period when I was growing up in the UK, it was intercommunal violence in Northern Ireland between Catholics and Protestants, but also uh, uh, supporters of um, uh, Sinn Féin and the IRA, many enablers in society that Rashawn um, was talking about there, that a very small hardcore of people who were actually interested in violence and terrorist activities, but a much larger pool of people, not just on uh, the Irish Republican cause, but also on the Ulster Unionist cause that actually just facilitated the violence by not wanting to step in because it was their side. And I think what we saw in January 6th was because we still are a majority white uh, nation that a lot of people thought, well, no, my group couldn't possibly do that. I mean, these are people who, again, the description of people who took part in January 6th, real estate agents, your local pastor, you know, a kind of guy who ran the garage down the street, the local store owner. I mean, these were all, these weren't, you know, kind of an unwashed mass 
just a bit like football supporters. You know, these were people who had jobs and, you know, some of them have come to terms with what they did later, but other people have actually been galvanized by this. And others have looked at it and thought, well, those people are like me. I can't possibly imagine that these people could be extremists. And that, again, is why it's so essential to have accountability, because every other society that's on the verge of this kind of uh, phenomenon has intercommunal violence uh, that's already uh, breaking out is going to be watching us to see how we deal with it because we have to nip this in the bud. Thank you. Let, let's uh, spend a little more time on your, this point about um, accountability. Molly, do you want to offer some thoughts either to rate the work of January 6th uh, committees so far or is it too early to judge? I mean, uh, Jimmy Raskin gave us a sense of what they're what they're up to. But how important is what, how they've come so far? How would you uh, rate the, the chances or what type of accountability might emerge? It's a really great question. And as I sort of see the work of the January 6th committee so far, it has really seen itself as an investigative panel. So there are news reports that say it's sort of the members and staff have organized themselves into five teams. One is tracking the sort of financing of what happened on the 6th. One is tracking how federal agencies prepared and responded. One is looking at the degree to which President Trump pressured staff at the Department of Justice and state officials to overturn the election. One is examining sort of the rally planners and the Stop the Steal movement. And then one is exploring the role of uh, violent extremist groups like the, the Proud Boys. Um, and they've, you know, conducted hundreds of depositions. They are litigating, you know, probably at this point, double digit number of cases about um, people who don't want to comply with requests for information and subpoenas. So it's this really big investigative effort um, at this point, which is really important. And I think we should ask ourselves, you know, is a select committee of the House of Representatives really the kind of vehicle that, um, the only vehicle that, that can accomplish this? I think that um, given the sort of breadth of what they're doing, um, that may well be the case. I think the real question then co comes with kind of what do they do with all of this information that they are uncovering? And this gets to this accountability question. Um, they have, um, by all accounts uh, at this point, basically, 10 more months um, through the end of the calendar year. Um, I think the uh, reasonable expectation that Democrats lose control of the House of Representatives um, in, the, in the midterms, given what history tells us about midterm elections would mean that th this is the 2022 is, is the rest of the life of this committee. And so when they have this information, what do they do with it? Um, they have yet to really have widespread public hearings. Um, Representative Raskin himself has said, I believe that they expect to begin those at some point in March, although the sort of the, the date at which they are um, supposedly going to, to um, have hearings has been sort of moving like the date at which um, uh, we can give COVID vaccines to children under five. It just keeps going, keeps going out there in, in the future a little bit. And so I think it's a real issue. Um, and then the question is also sort of what purpose will those hearings serve? So we know from sort of thinking about congressional hearings that one of their values can be to help construct a coherent narrative for the public around 
a set of complicated events. Is January 6th, the sort of Quintus suggested before, simply beyond the point at which we will ever get a coherent agreement on, on what happened and why? Um, so I, this is all to say that it is, it is from everything that we can see on the outside and we can only see part of what's happening. Um, they have been doing a lot of work um, and, and really uncovering a lot of information and, and winning a lot of legal battles, which is kind of good for, for Congress as an institution as a whole. But I think they, in the, um, in the near term, the rubber really is going to hit the road as we start to have to figure out like what is actually going to come of all of this information. Great. Thank you, Molly. We're going to turn to audience questions in just a moment. I did have another question for uh, Quinta uh, on this question of accountability. Is there a role here for a Department of Justice? Um, there's uh, obviously been written about uh, why isn't uh, the Attorney General doing more? Should he be doing more as a question of setting norms, restoring norms, or as a matter of prosecution? Where, where do you come down on that? Or which, how should we think about that question? I think that's sort of the question when it comes to the Justice Department right now. Um, so I've, I've written with uh, Benjamin Wittes, um, also at Brookings, and Andrew Kent of Fordham, basically pointing out that uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland has been very quiet. Um, he entered the role of attorney general speaking in both his confirmation hearing and in his initial remarks after being sworn in to the Justice Department, saying that he understood his role as someone who, you know, wanted to restore the independence and integrity of the department after a, a very difficult four years um, under which during which it was sort of repeatedly under attack by Trump trying to really bend it to his will. Um, and yet Garland has been has been very quiet. He did speak recently about the prosecutions of the January 6th insurrectionists. Um, and shortly after that, we did see the indictment on a seditious conspiracy charge of a number of members of the Oath Keepers militia. So that's, you know, that's pretty important and I think shows that DOJ is taking this seriously. A seditious conspiracy charge is something pretty heavy to throw around. Um, but you're absolutely right that, you know, we have not yet seen any indication or heard anything from the department that it's looking at, uh, you know, the higher political echelons. So Trump, those in his immediate orbit, obviously there have also been some suggestions that members of Congress might be criminally investigated for any role that they had in the riot. Um, and the department has been quiet on this. So I think that, you know, that there are competing norms here. Um, as you kind of hinted, Sarah, you know, there's one argument is, well, the department, we don't want the department to look as if it's it's uh, going through political prosecutions. We don't want it to look like it's, it's prosecuting enemies or perceived enemies of President Biden, and that itself would be harmful to public trust in the department at a, a really politically divided time. On the other hand, as you also pointed out, there is a good argument, and I think I, I would put my my cards on, on the side of this argument that uh, showing that the department is committed to equal justice under law requires a, a willingness to go after, you know, offenses committed even by, by those in power, wherever that may lead. That doesn't mean pursuing a prosecution where one isn't merited, but I do think it means investigating and sort of going to the end of the line and, and seeing if charges might be merited. Now, we don't know that the department isn't doing that. Like I said, they've been quiet. They haven't said that they're not pursuing it. But to me, I think that that silence is in itself notable. And um, I would argue that the department 
it, that it would be beneficial to for the public for the public conversation if the department gives some signal one way or another in how it is thinking about possible criminal accountability for these actors in particular former president trump because in the absence of that all we can really do is cross our fingers um, and hope that the department is thinking about this in a serious and careful way wherever it comes down and if we're thinking about restoring public trust i don't think that's good enough Thanks, uh, Quinta. So many of the questions that have come in are all, many of them variants of, well, what is to be done? Uh, some on questions of disinformation, uh, misinformation, of uh, what are the important guardrails uh, to install or reinstall? So I thought maybe we'd uh, do a round here, but um, starting with Rashawn, you've of course done tremendous work on anti-Black uh, bias amongst policing. Um, could you uh, suggest where, where the policy needs to go especially I think given the stalemate that we've seen on the congressional angle and dealing with criminal justice and policing reforms? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, it, oftentimes where people go and, and Representative Raskin, he, he talked about it in what as a sociologist I would call from, from an interpersonal level that it needs to be people speaking up and people need to do stuff. But when we look throughout history, the changes that have been made when it comes to addressing racism have primarily been done through policy. Um, they've also primarily been done through the president's pen, particularly executive orders. And so people are looking at President Biden saying, look, okay, you, you've made, you, you've said that you're going to put a black woman on the Supreme Court, kind of all of this, the, the three or four, I guess, that are on the current short list, I mean, are, are highly qualified. And, and so, so thinking about it from, from that vantage point, it's important to put this in a, in a broader historical context just quickly. Um, well, honestly, Actually, we don't even have to go that far. We can go to yesterday when Howard uh, University uh, has been, I think now growing up to about 10 historically black colleges and universities that have received bomb threats over the past several weeks. That is very reminiscent of what happened in the 1940s, 50s and 60s when what was happening, when we were in a racial awakening where it was going to take people with a lot of political will to do something about it. And guess what they did? And things got better and things have been better. But what's important for people to know is that things can reverse. So accordingly, what we need is the discussion that you were just having with Quinta. The Department of Justice definitely needs to step up. And, and I think they have been, particularly when it comes to thinking about policing. There are a series of investigations, pattern and practice investigations of police departments around the country that oftentimes I think gets missed in the headlines, but, but my research documents that those go a very long way. We also know that ensuring that government contractors and workers go through bias trainings, that's important. Why? Because under Obama, uh, that was put in place, and then under Trump, that was rolled back, and now that's being put back in place under Biden. These sort of things are really, really important to ensure that anyone who works with the federal government, then it trickles through, ends up having a similar sort of training and understanding, not just about uh, the way that that bias works, implicit bias or explicit bias, but what does it mean to be anti-racist? What does it mean to be racially equitable? What does it mean to be an accomplice, which is oftentimes using one's own privilege to address racism and discrimination um, in society? So I think policy is the way to go. And then we know that there is a broader attack in education trying to really put a chilling effect on teachers engaging in certain discussions. And you all know, like I know, it's important to note this. Of course, I'm talking about critical race theory, which 
up until last year when it became such a big deal, I didn't even teach it to my undergraduates in my race class. Like it just wasn't something, it was something that was reserved primarily for graduate students. But it's students now that are asking for this information. Um, so we have to be clear about what's going on and collectively these are connected because when we think about these bomb threats that are happening right now, and we go back to the 40s, 50s and 60s, we saw not only bomb threats, we saw bombings. And until legislation, particularly hate crime legislation, starts to enhance, we're gonna to continue to see people be able to hide under the First Amendment. And eventually you're gonna get incidents like what we saw on January 6th, you're gonna get incidents like what we saw with the mother um, Emanuel AME Church massacre in South Carolina uh, by Dylan Roof, which mind you, uh, played a big role in Biden actually being president. Because I think, uh, like you all know, but I think it's important for people who might know this story, um, when he was vice president and, and Obama was president, they go to South Carolina to be at this church. Um, Obama gives the eulogy. Biden is there. And guess what happens? All these people leave. People go back to Washington. Who stayed? President Biden. Why? Because he had lost his family. He had lost his son. And he knew what grieving meant. And he stayed with people and had conversations. So when the primaries came around to come through South Carolina, and of course, he was he was losing at that time. Who did people come out to vote for? And overwhelmingly, um, when you're talking about the primaries, Black people in South Carolina make up a large uh, block of, of Democrats. They voted for Biden. So, so these things become connected in an interesting way. And we know that Biden ran for office because of the statements that Trump made about Charlottesville and what happened there. But we have to have policy beyond the rhetoric. And I, I hope I've laid out a few examples of things that could be done and strengthened. Great. That's very helpful, um, kind of knitting it all uh, together there, Rashawn. But do you want to say a little bit about a uh, question here about disinformation? Is there something that can be done? Congressman Raskin talked a little bit about it, but do you want to kind of frame the issue for us here? Sure, absolutely. I think that, you know, disinformation can be a tricky term. It's sort of become a major part of discussions around public life in, in the United States and around the globe, really since 2016, sort of sparked by uh, Russian trolling online around the 2016 election. But I think often what we're really talking about when we talk about disinformation is polarization, a lack of trust in one another as, as citizens, um, as fellow members of society, in institutions. And so it's hard to say how do we address disinformation without, I think, addressing those underlying factors. Um, you know, you can say try to limit uh, the material that people get online that say uh, undermines their confidence in elections um, or undermines their confidence in the safety and efficacy of the coronavirus vaccine. But at the end of the day, it seems to me that there's there's a you know that can have some effect, but perhaps a limited effect if one major political party um, and you know social and political groups with which people feel affiliated and feel a strong connection to are encouraging people to believe in those things and putting out you know all kinds of, of media that people seek out and and want to see. Um, and so I think that, you know, that that isn't to say that there aren't interventions that could be made um, to sort of make our information environment healthier. Um, I think often, you know, it's, it's easier to kind of take these things, scoping them very narrowly, you know, say, what do we need? What do we want from Facebook in particular, perhaps more data, 
perhaps we want to break Facebook up, although I'd question whether that would, you know, help with the problem of disinformation. Maybe what we want is we want to think about, you know, the, the role of cable news, or uh, as Congressman Raskin suggested, we want to think about the role of civic education in our, in our schools. Um, so at the same time as disinformation is, you know, a huge topic that touches on these sort of tectonic social issues, I, I also think in some ways that it can be more useful in terms of thinking of what to do by scoping our interventions very narrowly. That's unsatisfying because it means that there's no magic fix and, and I wish that, uh, that there were, but that's ultimately my sense of the best way to think about this problem. And I'll be interested to see, as, as Congressman Raskin mentioned, uh, what the January 6th committee has to say both about the role of misinformation in the January 6th attack and uh, he suggested they might have some policy recommendations. I'll be uh, looking forward to see what those might be. Great. We have time for an audience question for Fiona and then for Molly, and then uh, I think that will bring us uh, to the close. Um, so uh, Fiona, uh, someone asked that um, one message the US delivers in developing countries is the concept of peaceful transition of power and calls to those who uh, lose in fair elections uh, to admit election results. Um, you've touched on this a little bit already, but what would you say to those skeptics in other countries who now question the U.S. role as a democracy uh, promoter? Well, look, I think that really ties to what Quinta has just said. You know, if there's recommendations coming out of the January 6th um, committee, that's going to be quite critical, especially if we actually implement them. And, you know, what Rashawn was just saying about the importance of the pen of the president and policy is going to be critical as well. I mean, there's one element in this that actually could also play a role. It's, it's really the demonstration effect, right? It's the power of our example, which we've lost right now. The power of our example is pretty negative because of the results of January 6th. And before it's been quite positive, again, is our attempts to you know, constantly reform ourselves and to be open about this. You know, we're usually very transparent about the processes that, that we're undergoing. Congressman Raskin did talk about, you know, people needing to stand up. And I think Rashawn is absolutely right that you need the presidential pen, but people do need to stand up as well to make things happen. And, you know, around um, the events of uh, January 6th, it would be very important for, I think, for citizens groups to step forward. And one thing, again, you know, I mentioned just in, in passing the troubles in Northern Ireland, which was, you know, a huge part of my youth. Um, as, as a kid, I would, you know, recommend to people going to see Kenneth Branagh's film of Belfast, you know, set in 1969. Uh, Kenneth Branagh is somewhat older than me, but, you know, seeing that outbreak of communal violence between, you know, Irish uh, Protestants and Catholics with the same people, they're Irish, just, you know, division on the base of religion. And we're all Americans. We've got to remember that as we, you know, divide ourselves off into various identity groups. We still have in common, you know, this polity, this country, we're all Americans. We've got to figure out a way of having these cross-group uh, cross, you know, kind of uh, generational as well, coalitions to get things done. But in Northern Ireland, one of the movements uh, for actual was then political decisions and the pen, you know, the decisions of the government. And then we had, you know, the Good Friday Accords that helped to be brokered by, you know, US uh, Senator Mitchell, for example, was a citizens movement. And it came in multiple forms, but one of them began in the late uh, 1970s run by uh, two women who had suffered tragedies, you know, members of their family had been killed in the course of the sectarian violence. And they brought people across from both Protestants and Republicans. 
from like about 1976-ish to the 1980s. And there were these women's peace marches, which got people's attention. And although, you know, there was all kinds of dynamics there that didn't quite work out, they helped to promote this kind of sense that people were also demanding uh, a change and um, a resolution uh, to this uh, this sectarian violence. We're in sectarian violence. Sectarian doesn't mean a uh, you know, Protestant Catholic. It means sectarian different groups that identified themselves on different bases. We have that. We've had this, as Prashan pointed out, for an extraordinarily long time, and it's continuing. And so we have to figure out how to move across that. And policy uh, and uh, pronouncements and uh, new legislation is pretty critical. The Department of Justice has a critical role to play, but so do citizens and citizens coalitions. And Black Lives Matter movement actually had the kernel of that because you know what we saw after the murder of uh, George Floyd was large groups of people from all kinds of different backgrounds, racial, socioeconomic, you know, you name it, getting out onto the streets. We could have turned that into something, you know, quite different. Uh, and it still could be. Uh, I mean, we, we could have that kind of citizens movement, maybe, uh, you know, inspired by whatever the rulings of the January 6th committee are. And that would be, um, I think, proof to people elsewhere that you can actually do something. I mean, we're in the same kind of need as, you know, Northern Ireland was uh, at the height of the troubles. Uh, for trying to find some kind of reconciliation in our society and some kind of legislative path forward. Great. Thank you, Fiona. And then, Molly, the last word. If you could have a one magic wand, what, what is to be done? Um, I wish I had one thing that I could do with my magic wand. Um, I think it is important um, both to keep in mind what may seem like from the outside as small ball type actions that the committee may recommend, um, but that are important to preventing um, some sort of attack like this from happening again. But I also think we face really big challenging questions about of our democratic system and questions about you know have we ever really had a moment where we've had true multi-party multi-racial democracy in the united states and i would love to reconvene this group of people to sort of tackle that question together but i think that's the magnitude of the question um and so i um like i said i wish i had one thing to say but but i'll leave it there excellent uh, modern democracy is unthinkable, save in terms of the parties, as a great public scientist once said. Um, thank you all to the panel, and thank you to our very active uh, audience for all your questions and for listening. And uh, thank you all for being here with Brookings today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, which hosted this event. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and look for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. You can check out our written work at lawfareblog.com and buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. As always, the podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.